Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We're continuing a series on the Old Testament books of Kings and the very dramatic story of the prophet Elijah. So what happens when a prophet loses his mojo? Where does he go to get it back? Let's find out. We are in 1 Kings, chapter 19. Let's see if we can uh, get pretty much through 1 Kings and follow through on this story. This is where the spiritual war that we introduced at the beginning, but which was still pretty much behind the scenes when uh, Solomon came to power and there was a relatively peaceful succession between Solomon and David. Only a few people got killed (laughs) rather than there being a major war as there was between when at the, after the death of Saul when, before David could come to power. Uh, so, but we see all of that. The hand of God was in all of that. Things that were going on. We, see, we saw the uh, blessing that God gave to Solomon and we saw Solomon begin to take his blessing for granted and in, began and introduced into the spiritual life of his people, the very seeds that would destroy his kingdom through his pride and through the bringing in of idolatry. Now Solomon himself restrained himself from idolatry until later in his life and he actually did worship the idols that he brought in through initially through religious toleration for his many wives, he actually began to worship and serve those idols. And that really was what brought some judgment upon him. And he saw the beginning of the end of the United Kingdom. Then we see the division of the kingdom. And all the spiritual warfare is always in the background of this. You always understand that there's an enemy to God's people and that enemy has a particular purpose and it isn't just to to mess us up. The particular purpose of the enemy is to mess up God's purpose. God's purpose is the redemption of sinners and the redemption of a fallen creation. And to turn that which fell from its original intent. To turn it into something more glorious. Even than it was before. That's the intention of God. And His purpose is going to be fulfilled through the coming of Jesus Christ. The decisive moment in human history, the decisive moment in God's history, the decisive moment in salvation history. Everything is headed toward that moment. Satan's plan is to disrupt that. 
It's not just about messing us up, although that is, I'm sure, a lot of fun for the Prince of Darkness. It's about messing up what God's trying to do. And God's focus is upon a people with whom He made a covenant. Going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then bringing that covenant up through Moses and the covenant of the law, and then having brought it forward even further and making His covenant with David. So now, let's see what we can do to disrupt all of that. And, so, and it looks, at this point, like Satan's being pretty successful in all of this. We've talked about the power of precedent. How Jeroboam, although he was anointed by God in judgment upon Solomon's house to take away the kingdom from him and leave him only a remnant of that kingdom so that God could continue to fulfill His promise to the house of David. So that God would continue to follow through on His plan and purpose. Jeroboam did not trust God. Jeroboam didn't believe God. Everything Jeroboam had, God gave to him. And yet Jeroboam felt like he was, a, he was a self-achiever. He had pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He's the one that made this happen. And he's the one that's got to keep it going. And therefore, he decided, I'll, I'll do something ingenious. I will keep the people loyal to me by setting up a religion that is loyal to me. Jeroboam was a liberal. Jeroboam was a humanist when it came to religion. Set this, the power of precedent. There's, Israel is still worshiping Jehovah, but they are worshiping Jehovah in direct disobedience to the second of the Ten Commandments. Worshiping Jehovah by making graven images and bowing down to them and worshiping them. Power of precedent. That's a precedent that never got overturned. Never. And every king that succeeded Jeroboam, whose dynasty was short, <laughs> every king that succeeded Jeroboam maintained that same idolatrous worship, and therefore every one of them was, didn't matter what their other virtues may have been, every single one of them was pronounced they did evil in the sight of the Lord because they did not turn away from the idolatrous worship established by Jeroboam. I mean, that's just whatever else, whatever other, their other <coughs> virtues and the perspective of the writer of Kings is, if you want to read more about these guys, go to the library. I'm not interested. That's not what we're writing about. We're writing about what God's doing in all of this and what is God's perspective on all of this. And we're writing to let you know and understand that despite the sinfulness of men, God is still in control of His world. Despite the fact that Satan does... He is the ruler of the powers of the air, despite the fact that he is the prince of the powers of this world... To God belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
And there will come a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And what David wrote in Psalm 2 is still the truth. Why do the nations rage? Why do the heathen imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And then He shall speak to them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. God is still in charge. But now, with the coming in of the son of Omri, and Omri was an achiever. He was a military man, and he was a very able military man. And this general took over. He staged a coup in which he overthrew the king for a week, Zimri. And Omri established a capital city for Israel on the hill of Samaria and built a city there, a fortified city, a good one. And he passed on the throne to his son Ahab. Ahab made an alliance with the king of Sidon. And married his daughter, Jezebel. And they became a pair. Oh, Bonnie and Clyde. I'm telling you, it was... Bonnie and Clyde, if they had become kings, if they had, if they had become, the, if they had ruled the place, I'm telling you. Because these are criminals, really and truly. Now, there are some remarkable, remarkable aspects. When we saw how God sent a challenger, this is where the war starts breaking out in the open. Prophets, typically throughout history, they pronounce the word of God, but they don't implement the word of God. Now, they may be leaders in other regards, like Samuel. But they pronounce the word of God, but they do not typically implement the word of God. Moses was one of those prophets who pronounced the word of God and implemented that word. But you don't have somebody like Moses coming along until you have Elijah. And Elijah, like Moses, didn't only pronounce the word of God, he implemented it. And we see a man that, as we mentioned last week, R.G. Lee described as a great spiritual and physical athlete. And he was, he came in and he single-handedly contested the bringing in. This is what Ahab did. Ahab, through the influence of Jezebel, didn't, he wasn't content simply to worship the Lord idolatrously. Jezebel wanted to see this entire worship of Jehovah Overthrown totally. Let's not even keep this thing of Jehovah. Why? Because this Lord Jehovah God still has these pesky commandments. And we may pick and choose which commandments, but people still think that you've got to obey the commandments. No, no, no. We come up with the law. We establish the law. God doesn't establish law. We establish law. Total humanism. 
all idolatry is humanism. It may look religious. It may have religious trappings, but all idolatry is humanism. And the Baalism that Jezebel brought in was complete and total humanism. Eliminate, eliminate the worship of God that comes from revelation. We are the revealers. Elijah came in and put the lie to that. Challenged Baal on his own ground. And won by faith. James wants us to remember in the book of James, James reminds us, Elijah was a man of like passions as we, but he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He said, you guys think you can't pray? You, th you guys think Elijah wasn't any different from any of us. But he believed and he prayed. Well, Elijah at Mount Carmel. We saw, we looked last week at that. We saw that, uh, the, the story of all of that. I'm not going to retell all of that, but what took place was Elijah gained a great victory. And at that victory, he, God used Elijah's faith to prove that he alone is the living God. Of course, Elijah's name, Eliyahu, means Yahweh. He is God. And that's what the people were crying out. They were crying out Elijah's name, but actually they were crying out a slogan, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Consequence of that, according to the law, put the false prophets to death, and all of the false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth were slain. And then there was a feast, and this is what begins to be remarkable to me. The feast. God is reaching out to Ahab. Evil, wicked Ahab. God is reaching out to Ahab and saying fellowship with me. There's a We've just had a sacrifice and now it's time for the barbecue. Let's have a feast. Let's feast here. Let's enjoy the barbecue. And while they're feasting Elijah's up praying and the rain comes again after three and a half years. And while it's raining, Elijah is running back to Jezreel to meet the king as he's driving up in his chariot. 17-mile marathon run. And he's standing there at the gate as King Ahab drives his chariot through in the soaking rain. Hmm, dramatic. One, we've won. We've won. We've got the victory. We're in. We've done it. Oh, can you imagine the exhilaration that Elijah must have felt? The next day, a messenger from Queen Jezebel comes. <coughs> said, the queen has put a price on your head, and she has sworn to her gods that you're going to be dead by nightfall. I want you to go in your mind and in your imagination from the exhilaration of that moment, standing at the gate of Jezreel, watching Ahab drive his chariot through after knowing that he knows 
and that he knows that you know. And that you know that he knows that you know that he knows you know. <laughs> and the exhilaration of that moment and then go down to this absolute moment of desolation when it suddenly occurs to you, all of this is for nothing. Because Jezebel still is the one who's really in control. And I'm never going to convince Jezebel because... She's not one of God's people. She cannot be redeemed. She is sold. She's gone and she sold out her husband. And, she, and, and all of a sudden, just this realization, everything I've done, everything that we've done, everything that God has shown, but it's for nothing. Because Jezebel's in control. And we go from the peak of exhilaration... And remember, think, I want you to consider also both the spiritual and the physical exhaustion that takes place. Because remember, Elijah is a man no different from us and has his passions are no different from our passions. His experience of life is no different from ours. And he goes from the peak of exhilaration to the pit of despair in just a few short hours. Elijah's worn out. He's used up. He's given it everything that he's got. <clears throat> All of a sudden he realizes that the enemy, he now sees the enemy before him. At this point, up until this point, all that he has seen is the God of glory who's behind him. And now he turns and he sees that the enemy before him. And he's won one battle. But now the whole war stares him in the face and he loses it and it is not out of faith it is not by the word of God it is by his own weakness and despair he runs Verse 3, chapter 19. Then he was afraid. He arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Let me tell you what's south of Beersheba. Desert. I mean, you're going... No, no, no. Wait, wait. Understand. You're going... Basically, Beersheba, you've got to go through a place that you look... You know, it looks... This looks like pretty much like a desert in order to get through Beersheba. But then after you pass Beersheba, and you're going out into the desert of deserts. And so he goes and he... came and sat down under a broom tree. And he says, God, just let me die. It's enough now, Lord. I've, when he says it's enough, literally what he's saying, it's saying, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I, I, I want you to really experience the desolation that Elijah, Elijah is experiencing right now. Just a few days before, he was on top of Mount Carmel praying in the rain. 
A few days before he was on top of Mount Carmel praying down the fire. A few days before he was on Mount Carmel celebrating the victory of the Lord over the prophets of Baal. And now he's trying to get a little bit of a shade under a tree that doesn't give any shade. And he's saying, God, just kill me. <laughs> just, just take me now. I can't do this anymore. I wonder if you've ever been there. Not in any kind of grandiose terms like this. Not in any absolute terms. But have you ever just horribleized your life? I mean, who of you have been where Elijah has been? Well, I haven't been on Mount Carmel. I haven't been to Beersheba. But I have horribleized my life in which, in which I have felt like I was like that. You ever hear horribleize your life? That's a word I got from Dr. Laura. You know, you, know, you horribleize stuff. You know, you just, you just kind of, that's when we get into our, in the midst of our troubles and we start magnifying them in which this is all that there is. And our failure. <laughs> Gloom, despair, and Oh, that's that's right. I mean, we're just you know we 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 get that. That's all we see. We all we see is our failure, and that's what Elijah's looking. That's all he can see right now. All he can see, and he doesn't blame anything on God. But all he sees is his own failure. He says, "I'm no better than my fathers." We don't know anything about Elijah's fathers. I think that's part of his point. My fathers were obscure men and I'm an obscure man. I'm not any better than they were. He lay down and he slept under a broom tree. Well, that's one thing that was good. And by the way, you know, when... I remember Adrian Rogers pre in preaching this, you know, in a sermon, in Sunday morning pr uh, prayers of three preachers. All three of them. They had Moses, Elijah, and... Uh, Jeremiah all getting up said, God, just kill me now. <laughs> just take me now. Monday morning prayers of preacher. In this case, well, you know, one of the things he needed was rest. He was exhausted. Remember Psalm 103? As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities his children. So the Lord pities those that fear him. For I, I take such comfort from these words. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Elijah's feeling very much like dust right now. He's exhausted. He falls asleep. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Let me just tell you, there wasn't any fire. There was a cake baked on hot stone, fresh baked bread and a jar of water. Somebody says, what kind of cake was it? Well, it was angel food. <laughs> and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, <clears throat> arise and eat. <clears throat> for the journey is too great for you. <clears throat> you're going to need this and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 
40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now, it didn't, doesn't say, don't misread that. It doesn't say that it took him 40 days and 40 nights to get to Horeb. It says that he didn't eat for the next 40 days and 40 nights. Who else fasted for 40 days? Who else fasted in the wilderness for 40 days? Jesus did. So, he got up and he went to Horeb. That's about a 10 days trek from there. It says in my Bible, by 250 miles. It says Mount Horeb, they're also in Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Of course, that also, that 250 miles is if the traditional Mount Sinai is, which I don't think it is. But it really doesn't matter. This is the place where Moses... <clears throat> had encountered God, where the children of Israel had encountered God, and Elijah says, I'm going to go back to our roots. I'm going to go back to the place where we once were. I'm going to go back to where the covenant was made. I'm going to go to that place. That's what's in his mind and heart to do. I'm going to go back to that. And so, he arose and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to horror of the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, what does that tell you? Whose idea was it to go to Horeb? That's right. Did God tell him to go there? No, not directly. I mean, this is the kind of question. The first time we see a question like this is back in the Garden of Eden. When God came into the garden and said, where are you? And it's not that God is ignorant. It's not that God doesn't know. He's call God's calling out Elijah, right? to use the expression, in the fullest sense that it's used in the modern way. God's calling him out. What are you doing here? Okay, Elijah's coming. He's going to challenge God. Elijah's got this Job thing going on. <coughs> Book of Job, very real. I mean, it's, this is true spiritual. And Elijah, he's, Elijah's got questions that he wants to have answered. So Elijah says, and Eli, Elijah lays it out. Elijah is a truthful man. And that's one of the reasons God loves him so much and uses him like this. I speak figuratively because, of course, God's love for Elijah is by grace the same as it is for even as we're going to see for Ahab. But look what he says. What are you doing here? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind broke, tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound. In this translation of a low whisper. King James, that very memorable phrase, a still, small voice. Hebrew is, it's a little bit different, but it's a voice, a silence. Those two words put together. A silent voice. 
Now, this is so iconic. And we heard this story. If we went to Sunday school as little children, we heard this story. And we heard that, and we, we heard that King James phrase, a still small voice. And preachers have used that phrase, a still small voice. And we, we hear that. And we, we, what's going on here? First of all, don't miss the connection between what takes place here and what took place in the life of Moses. There's a direct connection. Where did, where did Elijah go? He went to where Moses heard from God. That's right. Went to where Moses heard from God. You look back in Exodus. And after the rebellion of the people, Moses cried out to God. And out of the, out of the, the calling of his own heart, the thirst of his own soul for God, he said, God, show me your face. And God said, I can't show you my face. You'll never make it. But I'll show you something. And God hid Moses there and that again that memorable King James phrase in the cleft of a rock. And God covered him with his hand as he passed by. And when he passed by, do you remember what revelation Moses received? God spoke his name to Moses. God himself spoke his own name to Moses. Now the fullness of all of that means I don't think we can even get, a, get our minds around. Because we can't get our mind around the fact that God's name is who God is. God's name is his word. God's word is the Logos. The Logos is Christ. It's revealed Moses. Everything that who God is. And now, Moses couldn't get a hold but just a, of a part of it. But God revealed him. He spoke to Moses. A mind melt. I want you to see that revelation that God gave to Moses. Moses wrote down as he could verbalize it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into the law. God does not add anything to that. God does not speak His name to Elijah. He had already spoken His name to Moses. That, word, that revelation had already been given and God did not add to that revelation because it wasn't time to add to that revelation and would not be time until the Word would become flesh and dwell among us so that we could behold His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. The problem with Elijah though here, Elijah's gotten to this point. Understand how Elijah got to this He's got to this point because he quit thinking theologically. What? Did you realize that as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a child of God, it is vitally important that you... This is why Paul says in Romans 12 that we must renew our minds. We've got to learn how to think theologically. We've got to learn how to think Listen to me. We've got to learn how to think as though God exists. Not just as though God exists, but as though God lives. That's the message of Elijah. Up until this point, up until the time that Jezebel's threats came, 
Elijah had disciplined himself to think theologically. The whole world, you can't, you, it's hard to do because God is invisible. In order to think theologically, you've got to believe in God's word. And you've got to believe who he says he is. Elijah is at this place because he stopped thinking theologically. And he started thinking, quote unquote, realistically. He's looking at his circumstances, but he's not believing in the word of God. God is bringing him back to this place. Look how he does it. He comes and here he has, you've got the whirl, the, the thunderstorm, the whirlwind, the fire, the earthquake. All of this goes on. These violent events, these shaking events. This is what, what Elijah himself had seen on Mount Carmel. This is what he was expecting. And God did not meet his expectations. He was expecting that the great event on Mount Carmel, when the fire fell, that was it. That was going to be the decisive moment. And everything would change from that point. And it didn't, as far as he could see. Now, what he didn't know is that it really did change. It really did change. But Elijah couldn't see it. The enemy was still there. The war was still going to have to be fought. It was going to go on. Satan doesn't just roll up his carpet and walk away after he's been beaten once. Why? Well, I think probably because this thing is all he's got. This is the only gig he has. And the only power that he really is able to wield is wielded through lies and deception. <clears throat> so, Elijah's got to get his mind cleared. He's got to get straightened out. God does not add. God does not speak to him his name as he had spoken to Moses. He had already spoken it to Moses. There's nothing to add to that. But what God does do is he begins to speak. After all of these things come by, and Elijah, God is not in any of it. Elijah is waiting. He is waiting. He is looking to see where God's going to answer him. And God does not answer in the whirlwind. He doesn't answer in the earthquake. He doesn't answer in the fire. After it all, there's a silent voice that comes to Elijah. Think about that. Silent, a voice that has no sound. You read in the Psalms, the voice of the Lord thunders. That's what Elijah's thinking. The voice of the Lord comes to him now and it doesn't even have a sound. And when Elijah heard it, it overwhelmed him. How do I know that? Look at verse 13. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He wasn't overwhelmed by the fire, the earthquake, the storm. He was overwhelmed by a silent voice. 
and he covered his face. And went out to the entrance of the cave and the question came again. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, there are some commentators who look at this and say, Elijah still doesn't get it. I think they don't get it. What else is Elijah going to say? He's a truthful man. What else is he going to say? Why is he here? He has already said why he's here, but God calls him out again. Say it again, Elijah. Why are you here? Vocalize your problem. Tell me. Speak it to me. Tell me. But now, Elijah is hearing. He's listening. But God doesn't want to speak to him yet. He wants to get it all out. So Elijah repeats what he said. And the Lord said to him, verse 15. Now notice, God does not answer any of his questions. He gives him, okay, Elijah, I've got a new assignment for you. <laughs> I've got three assignments, as a matter of fact. You're not done yet. You tell, you tell me, I'm done. God, stick a fork in me, I'm done. You, that's what you've said. You're not done. You let me decide when you're done. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abimaholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, shall Elisha put to death. Yet, this version is, there are different ways that this could be translated. This version says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Other versions can translate that, I still have 7,000 in Israel. The point is, you're not alone. You think you're all by yourself. That's just because you haven't met the rest of the company. The main thing is, Elisha or Elijah, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to get back to where you were when I was feeding you in the desert by the ravens. You're going to have to believe that I'm still here. I'm still alive. You haven't lost that, have you? You're tired. You've been tired. Fine. You've had your break. It's time to get back. I've got three things, three assignments for you. And by the way, Elijah's going to do a little bit more than those three things. Departed from there, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with the new 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. He was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him, cast his cloak upon him. I want you to see the understated drama of that. Here comes Elijah back, and he's walking through. He's back in territory, and by this time, Elijah now is certainly one of the most recognizable figures in Israel. There are probably more people who know who Elijah is than who know who Ahab is. And Elijah comes walking up, and also <coughs> there's a suggestion to me here. There are, things that, there are a lot of things that we're not told, but I do believe that it'll, this is not the first time that Elijah and Elisha have met. Now, that's just me. I can't prove that. But I do not believe that this is the first time that Elijah and Elisha have met. 
I think they've been in Bible study together before. I think they've been in a prayer meeting together before. I think they met at a revival somewhere. When Elijah comes by, he doesn't say a word to Elisha. Takes the cloak he was wearing. While, while Elisha is out there and he is plowing the field. Now, it's not one yoke with 12 oxen on it. I mean, he's got 12 yoke of oxen. This is a large family farm. It's a huge family farm. And Elisha's out there and he's foreman of this and he's got his own yoke of oxen. He's plowing ahead with him and Elisha comes right up to him in the middle of the work day. Just in the middle of the work day. Not a convenient time. Okay? Now, I've never done any real plowing, but I've seen it done. And it's not, that's not something you just interrupt. That's not something farmers like to be disturbed in. They like to, they like to, they've got a patch that they want to get done, and they want to get that thing done. They've got so many hours of daylight to do it. This is not a convenient moment. And Elijah walks right up to Elisha, doesn't stop, doesn't say a word, takes his cloak, pitches it on his shoulders. And now you're out working and sweating in the field and you want a cloak on you, right? Elisha immediately gets the message. He knows exactly what's going on. Why does he know what's going on? You think God had been talking to him too? Think God had been working in his heart? Elisha knows what's going on, and he runs up, he runs after Elijah, and he says, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. He said to him, Go on, go on back. What have I done to you? He said, It's okay. He returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yolks of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate, and then he arose, went after Elijah and his system. There's the suggestion that he actually burned the plow for firewood to barbecue the oxen as a sacrifice that he gave, shared it with the people. This is their farewell dinner. Now somebody will say, you know, well, somebody came to Jesus and said, let me first go bury my father and then I'll follow you. Isn't this like that? And he said, no, 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 not at all. If that fellow had come to Jesus and said, let me go say, let me go kiss my father and my mother goodbye, Jesus would have said to him, as Elijah said, Go. Do it. But this man said, let me go bury my father. His father hadn't died yet. Why? Because they buried people within 24 hours of death. This is, let me go wait for my father to die, is what he was saying. Jesus said, no, no, no. <coughs> Nobody who puts his hand to the plow looking back is worthy the kingdom of God. This was not Elisha. This was not Elisha's heart. He said, let me go. Let me say goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I understand the last thing on verse 20. Mm -hmm. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? What's that? I don't know. I'm not even sure who's saying that. Is it Elisha or Elijah? Elijah, Elijah? Elijah is saying that. He said, basically what he's saying is, 
You're free. This is your decision whether to follow me or not. I'm telling you what God's told me. You do what you need to do. I'm not going to hinder you. That's what he said. He's giving him permission. Basically what he said, what have I done to you? He says, he's giving him permission. He said, you know. In other words, Elijah is saying, hey, this is not my gig, man. I'm doing what God's commanded me. You're going to have to do what God's commanded you. That's what he's doing. When I, when I read this, I think of the pictures you see of 2,000 acres of wheat in Washington and grain harvesters, one after the other after the other, in a row going through the field and taking another swath off. And one thing this tells me is the wealth of Elisha. Yes. And the family that he came from and what he gave up when he followed. But it was it was as if you had 12 yoke of oxen in the same furrow and he had these 11 other ones ahead of him. He was, he was bringing up the rear and kind of organizing and managing all of it. And uh, that's a big operation. He gave up a lot to follow Elijah. He gave, he did, he gave up a lot. He could have been a wealthy man. And he gave it all up. But he did it with an attitude of celebration. And he did it, he celebrated it. This is the first day of the rest of my life. I mean, he really did it with that, with that attitude. Now, let me, I'm, I guess we're not going to get through First Kings today. I don't know if I, I don't know if we're going to make it through Second Kings in the time that we're going to. I mean, there's there's just so so much, and I don't want to leave any of it out. And I don't know what we're going to do, so we'll just have to trust the Lord for it. What I want to emphasize right now is this, though, in that in terms of that spiritual war, and bring that and make the connection between the ministry of Elijah and where we are in our own day. You understand, first of all, that Elijah and his message was not welcomed by the mainstream in his society, that is, those who controlled the mainstream. You understand what kind of a price that Elijah had to pay in order to be Elijah, in order to do what he did, in order to be the prophet of God? what anyone had to do in order to be a true prophet of God. Next week, which I wanted to get to this story this week, but next week we are going to see what it, some of what that really is to be a prophet of God, a true prophet of God. Do you really believe what this word says? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him? I was reading this morning a little... Uh, the Pew Foundation had a study. Something about something like 70% of Americans believe that many religions offer the true way to God and the true way of salvation. 57% of evangelical Christians believe the same thing. What would an Elijah 
do. Not just coming into a society like ours, but into churches like ours and preaching a message that Elijah preached that Yahweh is the living God and none of these other gods are. And there is one way and there is no other. Is that message welcome today? Well, no, it isn't. And if we believe it and hold to it, we are going to have to deal with the fact that there are going to be people out there that don't like us and are going to wear us out. We're going to be challenged, and we are involved in the war. The war goes on. Don't lose faith. Okay, we're done. This has been our eighth talk on First Kings but we're still going to need one more to finish up. Next time, we're going to focus on King Ahab and the inciting incident that will trigger the prophecy of his downfall. This is Gary Nation for Insight. Thanks for listening.